This season of The Francis Effect is sponsored in part by Franciscan Media, seeking to spread the gospel in the spirit of St. Francis. Franciscan Media publishes books by authors like Richard Rohr, Heather King, and Ronald Rollheiser. Get 25% off your first order in the store when you use the code FRANCISFX, that's Francis, the letter F, and the letter X, at franciscanmedia.org. That's franciscanmedia.org. This season of The Francis Effect is brought to you by Liturgical Press in Collegeville, Minnesota. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality, evolving to serve the changing needs of the Christian church. They produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all readers looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Hello and welcome to the Francis Effect Podcast. My name is David Dalt. I host a radio show called Things Not Seen about culture and faith, and I'm an assistant professor of Christian spirituality at the Institute of Pastoral Studies at Loyola University, Chicago. I'm here with my friends Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Heidi is executive editor and vice president of National Catholic Reporter, a publication that connects Catholics to church, faith, and the common good with independent news, analysis, and spiritual reflection. Father Dan is the director of the Center for Spirituality and professor of philosophy, religious studies, and theology at St. Mary's College in Notre Dame, Indiana. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through a lens of our shared Catholic faith. Father Dan and Heidi, welcome to you both. Heidi, how have you been? I'm doing great. Thanks for asking. I'm very excited as I'm getting ready for my first work travel in two years. So I have not yet been on a plane, and apparently I was lucky enough to uh, book my flight for tomorrow on the first day of decreased mask wearing across the country, although I believe they're still required uh, on planes. So I'm hoping for uh, no catching of COVID on the way. But I'm headed to Connecticut, to Fairfield, where I'm going to be speaking at Sacred Heart University. It's Wednesday night, so if people are listening to this on Wednesday morning and they're in the area, I will be uh, on a small panel with Kate McElwee from the Women's Ordination Conference, and she and I are going to be talking about women's ordination and synodality in the church. So I forgot what it's like to pack a suitcase for an airplane, but I know you have still been doing quite a bit of traveling. Dan, where are you just home from? So actually, yeah, just last night I got in um, from St. Bonaventure University in, in Western New York, my alma mater, undergrad alma mater, and I have the privilege of serving on their board of trustees. So we had our February winter slash spring meeting, depending on how you look at the weather. It snowed the whole time I was there. A reminder of how different the Midwest is from the Northeast. As much snow and cold as we get here, there's a lot more snow and cold <laughs> in, in upstate New York, as it were. Yeah. So, you know, it's still a bit surreal to travel because you know, the mask mandates are, are still federal requirements in airports and on airplanes. But I had an experience yesterday as we're talking about traveling. I'm, maybe it's a little too soon. There was a flight cancellation in the middle of two layovers that I had. And, and thank God I travel as much as I do because I was able to get some quick response from the airline and being rescheduled, but got in very late last night as a result, but grateful to be in at all when I know Folks are stranded all the time. Uh, I thought for sure I was going to be one of them. 
things here are good. We are coming up on our midterm break here at St. Mary's and across the street at Notre Dame. We've also got a lot of exciting events happening since you plugged the Great Sacred Heart panel you're on. Listeners, tomorrow, Thursday, March 3rd at 5 o'clock Eastern time, we have a program at the Center for Spirituality. We're excited to welcome an anthropologist named Dr. Anna Corwin to campus who will be speaking on her book, Embracing Age, How Catholic Nuns Became Models of Aging. It's fascinating. It's really fascinating. She herself is not Catholic. She's actually a Jewish scholar who spent time in a monastery of Franciscan nuns for long periods of time doing research on what is it like to age and ultimately die in religious life? And what can that teach people more broadly about uh, the aging process in the United States? Fascinating stuff. So that's free and available um, to live stream through the Center for Spirituality at St. Mary's. We'll put a link up for you. And just to, to put a save the date out there, because I know a lot of our listeners will be interested in this too, our annual uh, Matt Oliva lecture, which is perhaps the signature lecture at St. Mary's College hosted by the Center for Spirituality and, and by far one of the most important lectures in the U.S. Catholic higher education system. This year, we're really honored to welcome Professor Elizabeth Schusser-Fiorenza from Harvard Divinity School, who is, I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, probably one of the greatest living New Testament scholars and a true pioneer in, in Catholic feminist interpretation. So she'll be speaking on Thursday, March 24th at 7 o'clock Eastern time. The title of her talk is What's in a Name? St. Mary's. And it's a bit of a pun because she's going to be talking about the three biblical Marys, Miriam in the Old Testament, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Mary of Magdala. And so we're really thrilled about that. It's online as well. Registration's available on the Center for Spirituality website. It's free and open to the public. We hope you join us. David, what are you up to? I think listeners have figured out already that 2022 has not started out great for the Dalt household. So in addition to my wife getting a touch of COVID right at the turn of the, the new year and me getting a kind of chronic bout of shingles, Friday night before the Monday that we we're recording this, I was bringing in some groceries and slipped on a patch of ice and got a bad sprain in my ankle. So physically, I'm horrible right now, <laughs> but every other aspect of my life is going really, really well. So we're almost at the midpoint of teaching at Institute of Pastoral Studies. The classes that I'm teaching are going fantastic. I'm teaching a class on media and theology and another class on Ignatian spirituality. And the particularly that latter class every year really fills my heart because watching the students become enlivened to this particular charism of the Jesuits is pretty fantastic because I just see how they're beginning to uh, uh, apply some of these principles and ideas into their prayer lives. And that's really fun to watch. In terms of projects, I'm excited to announce a couple of things that are launching either this week when this episode drops or soon. So the same day that we are launching, the day after listeners get this podcast, The Francis Effect, a new podcast that I've been working on for several months is going to go live that following Thursday. It's called The Four, and it is a podcast about African-American interests, civil rights, and spirituality that is hosted by an, just a powerhouse of co-hosts, Reverend Otis Moss III from Trinity UCC here in Chicago, Lisa Sharon Harper, who was formerly of Sojourners and now runs Freedom Road, which is an amazing justice organization, Pastor Michael Ray Matthews, 
who is has been working on justice work across the board, and Reverend Jackie Lewis, who has just released a book called Fierce Love and is also pastor of one of the oldest churches in the United States. Just a, an amazing group of guests as well, Michael Eric Dyson, uh, Pastor Otis Moss Jr., Otis Moss III's father, Kaliswa Brewster, who's a producer in Hollywood, just really a, a powerhouse of these luminaries from across the social justice movements. And so I'm very excited about that. I'm also working on a podcast with the Paulist Fathers featuring three deacons, and we don't quite know yet when that's going to drop. We're working on the initial episodes right now, but I'm excited that's in the cooker as well. Continuing to work with the Commonweal podcast, and that that has been growing by leaps and bounds, and we're I'm excited to announce some ambitious stuff we're going to be trying this summer with some extended episodes and some different styles of reporting. So a lot of that is really just very exciting for me right now. And as a person who does media as a way of trying to reach out to people with ideas about faith and culture and spirituality, it's an especially exciting time to be working because there's a lot for us to be talking about. (laughs) You are amazing, David. I can't believe you work on all those podcasts at one time. It's just crazy. I have learned to become very efficient with my time. (laughs) I I have a a very good workflow, and I am thankful that after about a decade of doing this, I've made just about every mistake in the book. And so I'm pretty good at avoiding those mistakes now. We're grateful for all the production work you do on our podcast. Just always amazes me how many other projects you're working on in in addition to your own podcast and your teaching. So, Well, I hope that listeners to this podcast will explore some of these other projects because, I mean, I think that especially the conversation around uh, civil rights and spirituality, particularly at this time, is incredibly important. And I'm very proud to be working with that group to help to bring that podcast into the world. Speaking of podcasts, on today's show, we're going to be covering three topics. We're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine. We're going to be as up to the minute as we possibly can be in in getting facts and discussion about that. We're going to be talking about that recent dialogue that Pope Francis had with students from North, South, and Central America, the Building Bridges North and South event that happened a week before the recording of this. And this episode drops on Ash Wednesday, so we're going to be talking about Ash Wednesday and Lent. All of that is coming up here on The Francis Effect. We hope that you'll stay with us. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Dan Haran, and I'm here with David Dalt and Heidi Schlumpf. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. As we are recording this on Monday morning, the United Nations General Assembly is meeting for a rare emergency special session to address Russia's invasion of Ukraine, and delegations from Ukraine and Russia are holding face-to-face talks in Belarus. By the time this episode drops on Wednesday, it will be Ash Wednesday. And Pope Francis has called for Catholics and all believers to mark the start of Lent with a day of prayer and fasting for Ukraine. The news has been changing rapidly since the invasion began on February 24th, but as of today, Monday, the Ukrainian military, aided by volunteers, have been able to stave off a full Russian capture of the capital city, Kyiv. But fighting and shelling has already left hundreds dead, including children. More than half a million refugees have already fled the country, mostly to neighboring Poland. 
Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has remained in Ukraine despite international offers to evacuate him and is being widely praised for his bravery and leadership. Meanwhile, widespread international condemnation is leaving Moscow increasingly isolated from the rest of the world. Economic sanctions caused the value of the ruble to plunge by more than 25% on Monday. Negative repercussions from the freezing of assets to canceled sporting competitions have come from all corners of the globe. Pope Francis, who called for peace during the Russian buildup to the invasion, took the unprecedented step of visiting Russia's Vatican embassy on Friday to express his concern about the war. On Saturday, Pope Francis called Ukraine President Zelensky to express his sorrow over the worsening situation in the Eastern European country. The Vatican continues to call for negotiation rather than violence. Secretary of State Cardinal Pietro Parolin has said the Vatican is ready to facilitate negotiations between Russia and Ukraine. Pope Francis also has been in contact with the head of the Ukrainian Catholic Church, Major Archbishop Sladyshov Shevchuk, who has remained in Kyiv. The Ukrainian prelate canceled a planned trip to Florence, Italy, for a meeting of European church leaders to instead remain in the capital city with his flock. Ukrainian Catholic priests reportedly celebrated mass in bomb shelters in Ukraine on Sunday. In the United States, Ukrainian Metropolitan Archbishop Boris Gudziak told NCR that not only are the country's sovereignty and identity threatened by Russian aggression, but so is religious freedom. He warned that if Russia takes control, the Ukrainian Catholic Church would again be designated illegal and be forced back underground, as it was during parts of the 20th century. Gudziak told NCR, quote, What Ukrainians want is peace, freedom, and dignity, end quote. Heidi, you, like most of us, have been following this very sad story closely. What are your thoughts? Well, Dan, of course, my first thoughts are prayers for peace and immense sadness over this conflict. Obviously, there has been wars in other parts of the world that maybe haven't gotten the same attention here, but the the threat to Europe means that this could affect Americans in a special way. And most scarily to me is the threat of the use of nuclear weapons. So we saw that Putin was making comments that seemed to threaten the use of nuclear weapons. He was frustrated over the strong reaction from NATO and other Western countries. And then the news over the weekend that his weapon systems had been put on high alert. For someone who was alive for part of the Cold War. This is a very sobering, sad, and scary move. So I think I have been encouraged by the response, not only internationally by leaders, by our own president, and by members of our church. There have been some sort of outliers from some parts of the U.S., particularly some Republicans who have, in a very shocking sort of way, come out in support of Putin and Russia with this blatant act of aggression. But again, the moves by Pope Francis, who also did not attend that meeting in Florence because he's having trouble, I I believe, with his knee again. So he's a little bit out of sorts himself, but is really, I think, making some moves to show the Catholic Church's support of peace and against this aggression. Of course, there's this balance because Pope Francis also, throughout his pontificate, has been trying to you know, reach out to the Russian Orthodox Church and try to have some sort of uh, better relationship there as well. But the ways in which the national church in Russia seems to be being used to support this 
war is concerning too and should have all of us concerned about national churches. So yeah, a lot of sadness. And as a, a news junkie, it's pretty much all that I've been reading about for the last five days of the war. And the reporting has been incredible from foreign correspondents who are in Ukraine and and nearby and everyday people. So, you know, this is one of the first wars where we've had almost everyone still has access to social media who's in the country and who's, who's sharing very tragic, you know, sad stories about what it's like to be living in the middle of bombing and or trying to escape the country with half a million people flowing outside of the borders. So, Yeah, it's been really difficult to watch and explain to my children, I would say. I'm wondering how you guys are reacting. Well, I join you in just being heartbroken. As I mentioned in the opening of the episode, I was in Western New York for several days this week and weekend for a board meeting. And my colleagues and I, and my colleagues come from all sorts of different backgrounds and professional areas of work. And and all of us are, you know, there was shared sort of despairing and lament and prayers and frustration at what's going on. It really is kind of inexplicable. I mean, I've heard the reasonings, but they're the reasonings of a mad person when you think about Vladimir Putin's re-narrating of world history and his place within it in the place of the former Soviet Union. To me, what, what seems completely insane, frankly, and, and I don't think Vladimir Putin's insane, so I want to be clear about that. This is a really important distinction. You know, I'm reminded, of course, historically of Hannah Arendt's reporting of Eichmann's trial in Jerusalem, where, you know, the court psychologists made very clear that Eichmann was not technically insane. He was very much a man of reason, a very much, you know, a person of his own senses. And yet you have to ask these questions. How do people who are not delusional in a kind of clinical sense, how do people make these sorts of decisions and actions? And further to the point, how do people like the kind of rank and file soldiers and, and sailors and air airs men and women who are in the Russian military answer to such unjust and, and unprovoked and you know illogical sort of orders? I have been heartened by the exceptions to the rule that I've seen including a number of Russian athletes around the world. There was that very moving tennis player who wrote on the the lens of a camera and live broadcast, you know, no war. And there have been others too who have protested, the, the, you know, in protesting in a country where there is no freedom of speech, practically speaking, to see hundreds, if not thousands of women and men and children going to public squares throughout Russia and protesting this action. You know, they're taking a major risk themselves. That's very inspirational. They are risking their lives and their safety and their livelihoods. But I come back to this sort of quagmire. You know, I don't know what the right answer is. You know, it raises this question that I don't think we've seen in more than a a decade on this scale. I think what I mean by that is in in an otherwise peaceful context, one country invading their neighbor with the intention of taking it over. I mean, this is exactly World War II. This is exactly how that that tragic conflict began. And so I, I find myself really frustrated, even in, even intellectually, you know, let alone practically, to think about what does the world do? Do neighboring countries like Poland and Germany and their related allies take military action, which will very likely result in something like a World War III, because one can imagine... Belarus and um, certain other neighboring countries that are supporters of Russia and, and Putin. China seems poised to support the Russian Federation as well, in which case, 
You know, it's an East and West showdown that one can see playing out. Yet on the other hand, it's hard to watch what's going on without military intervention in an act of self-defense. And and I have to ask myself, like I think a lot of other people are ordinary people like us and politicians and lawmakers as well, you know, are sanctions enough, especially when you have an oligarchy that at the top making these decisions are fairly well insulated from financial punishments or hindrances. So I, I have lots more to, to say, and, and I'm continuing to think through this, but it's tragedy upon tragedy. And I, for one, don't know what the answer is. I'm glad I don't have to make the choice. On the other hand, I don't know how to feel about it, frankly. I mean, I mean, other than terrible, <laughs> other than really bad and upset about this. David, how, how are you engaging this? Well, so I've been trying to look at motivations and trying to figure out through kind of analytic means what we're dealing with here. And the best that I've got is three levels of analysis. So I hope that you'll be patient with me for just a moment. You mentioned oligarchy. And one of the things about oligarchy is that like feudalism before, it's an interlocking set of relationships which are financial and in many ways have fealty involved. And so the billionaires who sprung up after 1991 in Russia are billionaires in part because the power structure, particularly Putin, is allowing them to remain billionaires. He is He's controlling in some ways the opportunity for the people to enjoy this kind of money. So there's there's a lot of kind of interlock there in terms of who owes who. But Putin is the linchpin to all of it. So that's one piece is that we've got this, you know, it's not just a normal state autocracy. It's got this financial aspect of almost feudal fealty built into it. That's one piece of the analysis. A second level down in the analysis is Russia doesn't have a Western seaport taking over Ukraine helps to get that back for them, which is something that they want. Also, Ukraine has some of the richest uranium deposits in the world that are available for mining. And if you're thinking about a world that is moving away from fossil fuels and Russia having most of its oligarchic economy based in fossil fuel extraction and export, this might be a strategic move for Putin as well to help to maintain that oligarchy into the middle of the 20th century. The thing that scares me the most, though, is that all of this is being wrapped not in any kind of statist rhetoric like that, not we need a Western port or we need access to these reserves. What it's being wrapped in is this kind of moral rhetoric of the decadence of the West and you transgender and gay people, we are going to come in and that's what's getting picked up by a lot of the right wing in our own country. Those that are cheering for Putin are not cheering for Putin because he's a strong man, but because he's a strong man who's going to erase the existence of the people that we here in the West don't like. That, that you know, the evangelicals and the fundamentalists here who wish that gay people would disappear and wish the transgender people would no longer exist, they really like Putin and they have said so in as many words because he's willing to eliminate that as a moral threat as they see it. So I I see several levels of analysis here, all of which are concerning the oligarchy, the, the quest for kind of materials and stability into the 21st century and using force to do it. But the part that concerns me most is that third level of the analysis, the rhetoric that's being used and how religious people, Catholics here included, are signing on to that religious rhetoric and really using that as a way to wave the Russian flag in, in support of Putin and what he's doing. Yeah, just I, I want to add two things to what you're saying, David. I, I think you're right. You know, in addition to the uranium resources, and of course, we can't, we'd be remiss without acknowledging that one of the first things taken over by the Russian invaders was the Chernobyl site, which at this point is the world's greatest nuclear disaster and really, you know, kind of a graveyard to that. 
it's something I've been fascinated by for years and years. And those who've seen the HBO series, if you haven't yet, I highly recommend it. Well done. That's an aside. But in addition to that, and the port that you rightly mentioned, which I think informed the Crimea annexation in 2014, is that Ukraine famously, especially during the Soviet Union, was referred to as the Soviet's breadbasket, that agricultural, it's an agriculturally rich land too, and accounts for, in, in I guess, geographic space, you know, the most sort of agriculturally fertile land in, in Europe, the largest landmass. We're recording this as we've shared already on early on Monday. There was breaking news not long ago within the last hour that Switzerland has broken its traditional sense of neutrality. So this is another first, which is that they are announcing that they're freezing Russian assets in terms of access to money. So, you know, this is a way I think to directly hit those oligarchs were discussed that the pressure is going to keep coming down with the hope that perhaps those who have insulated and continue to bolster up somebody like Putin might be feeling the crunch and there could be an internal revolt. I mean, I think that's probably, you know, what's hoped for in this sort of action. Yeah, one thing that has amazed me and and inspired me is the number of Russians who are protesting the invasion, many of them being arrested. And to do that in Russia, I think, is a real act of, of bravery and witness. I think, David, when you talk about religious people, whether in Russia or elsewhere, uh, buying into this make Russia great again, you know, way that Putin seems to be getting support for what may be moves that are really more about economic or other military goals. I think you can't deny the role of propaganda and misinformation in some Russians maybe falling for this. So not just now since the invasion has begun, but over over the years. So I think you know, I'm not as inclined to let uh, U.S. Christians off the hook who are buying into that because we don't have state-controlled media here and they have access to real information, although obviously with the Internet, problems about media literacy and what people are believing. I think we have to be very cautious, especially during war, about believing everything that we see reported and try to stick to, you know, reputable news sources. But of course, that has been something that has been in decline, people's willingness to stick to reputable news sources. So this level of propaganda and misinformation tied in with this desire to go back to this easier time when apparently life was so great for everyone, or at least great for the people who are mouthing this, you know, propaganda, I think is really concerning both what we've seen happen in Russia and how similarly we are seeing some of those things happening in our own country. You know, I, I want to pick up on this point about propaganda. I mean, I think in the modern age, there's no nation state, no sort of foreign entity that is as good at propaganda as as the Russians are. We saw that, of course, in our own soil in 2016 and in 2020 and beyond. But I also want to highlight something, too, that complicates this a bit. One of the things that the, the Russians have been very good at in the Soviet Union before them is actually building propaganda on truth. <laughs> and I don't mean things like the re-narration of history that Putin is presenting about the relationship between Ukraine and, and the Russia, uh, the Russian Federation or any of the other kind of nonsense that is pure fiction, in, but he wants to you know, present his truth. I'm talking about things like one of the things in his now famous rant last week, right before the invasion, he's not wrong to say that what 
that basically what Russia is doing right now is analogous to what the United States did in the sovereign nation of Iraq back in 2003. I mean, he's 100% correct about that. Now, here's the point I would make, which is the U.S. was wrong back in 2003, and Russia is wrong now. Two wrongs don't make a right, as my mom is, is fond of saying. The Russians, or at that time, the Soviets did the same thing in the Cold War. To you know, before there was a Facebook and, and the kind of spurious you know memes and bots and these sorts of things. Back in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, the Russians did a very good job saying to the rest of the world, you know, these Americans go around talking about democracy, they're talking about freedom, talking about rights. Look at the way they treat black people in their own country. And the whole idea was that the U.S. is, you know, is exercising hypocrisy, that they say one thing, but if you, if you choose to side with them, you're going to be living this contradiction. Now, again, this is not – I'm not suggesting that the Russian experience or experiment of communism was better. No, I, I would side still with democracy 110 percent of the time. But he was not – well, he, they, the Russians, the Soviets were not wrong to point out the hypocrisy of the American experience with seg legal segregation and ongoing systemic racism and white supremacy. All of this is to say – I guess I want to throw it to the two of you. I mean what do we make of this because it's different – to say that this is just made from whole cloth. It's another thing when, you know, it puts the United States on its heels as a sort of moral champion or leader of democracy on a global stage where I, I think we need to, to take a big pill of humility along the way. I mean, do you, what do you two think about that? I agree, Dan, that we're not blameless here and that the U.S., there is a level of hypocrisy there. I have seen some people who previously supported the Iraq war, admitting finally now and when the comparisons are being made that that was not a just uh, invasion of a country. And I, I wondered how long it would take for it to be in the past of history for people to start saying that. Obviously, a number of people said that at the time. But I think we can only, um, you know, just try to apologize for what we have done in the past and try to be part of moving forward in the future. As a person with pacifist tendencies, um, a time of war is always really difficult for me. I know that our columnist Michael Sean Winters wrote last week about the moral questions that are raised and when the just war tradition can be appropriate in terms of defending yourself or your family or your country. And I think that I appreciate the voices of peacemakers and of our church leaders during this time as we're as we follow what's what continues to happen in Ukraine. And I think I would just pick up there to say that I'm sure that I speak for the two of you and for our listeners, when I say we are praying for peace, for a swift resolution of these conflicts, for a withdrawal of the Russian forces, and for a change of heart in the leadership that has led to this moment. I think it's frustrating for us because, you know, we're observers. There's very little that we can do directly. And so in that particular sense, I think prayer is the most active that we can be other than simply giving encouragement and solidarity to the vulnerable. And at this particular point, it seems like those, those lines are very clearly drawn. I guess I would just also add that there are places you can donate to help, even in terms of helping refugees. So with a half a million people fleeing into Poland and going going into other countries, I know that Catholic Relief Services is one of my favorite charities of choice and that they will be assisting. But there are a number of places that people can, in addition to their prayers, try to donate to help those who are, are impacted by all this. 
Well, we may have to come back to this in weeks to come. I hope that we do not. But in the meantime, this is where we're going to leave the conversation for today. You're listening to The Francis Effect, and we'll be back in just a moment. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm Heidi Schlumpf, and I'm here with David Dalt and Dan Horan. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss news and events through the lens of our shared Catholic faith. On Wednesday, February 24th, viewers from all over the Western Hemisphere joined in watching a two-hour dialogue between Pope Francis and students from North, Central, and South America. The event, called Building Bridges North and South, was organized by several departments at Loyola University Chicago and offices in the Vatican. The dialogue, which university officials believe was the first of its kind that Francis has held with U.S.-based university students, grew out of Loyola's efforts to participate in the Synod on Synodality. That, of course, is the global effort focused on dialogue with all corners of the Church. Francis and other church leaders have framed synodality as a decisive step in the church's renewal that the Second Vatican Council proposed more than 50 years ago. The dialogue consisted of students from diverse nations and backgrounds studying at Catholic universities and colleges in North, Central, and South America, as well as the Caribbean. The students asked questions in groups of four and Pope Francis took copious notes and answered, often referring to specific phrases from the questions and at several points addressing the students by name in his responses. It's difficult to gauge the total number of viewers, but the YouTube page for the event has logged close to 18,000 hits as of our taping today. David, you were one of those watching the event, and the Institute for Pastoral Studies, where you teach, was one of the co-sponsors of the event. Can you give us a glimpse behind the scenes at how this unprecedented event came together? Absolutely. Well, it started with a casual conversation between one of our deans, Dean Peter Jones, who I work with at Institute of Pastoral Studies, and a Vatican official. And I don't know the exact phrasing, but it was like, hey, wouldn't it be great if Pope Francis talked to students as part of the synodality that we're hoping for during the synod and synodality? And that led to uh, more formal conversations. And by Dean Jones's reporting, hundreds of hours of negotiations and logistical planning just on his part, in addition to others at Loyola University and other universities, basically in the northern and southern hemispheres, north and south. America, Central America, and the Caribbean, as you mentioned. And so this event, which was a really amazing two-hour event, took a lot of coordination and planning. It was in multiple languages. It was in at least English, Spanish, and Portuguese. And it was translated into a number of languages as well. I, I am a media professional, and I will just say, as a participant watching the event, I was amazed at how smoothly it went. I was amazed at how, when the hand Handoffs happened between languages, when handoffs happened between different parts of the world. It was a very watchable event. It 
was a very warm and cordial event. And it's an event that's happened thousands and thousands of miles apart with the participants, but in real time. I can't ever think of something like the, the closest thing that I can think of as a comparison to this would be the live aid events that happened when I was a teenager in the 80s, where you had simultaneous broadcasting happening in the U.S. and in Britain at the same time and handing back and forth to one another. But in some ways, this was even more complex than that, because instead of two sites, you were using at least six different sites of conversation. I will just say I was very proud of what I saw, and I was especially heartened at how closely Pope Francis was obviously listening to the students. He took notes, he referred by name to the students, and he quoted the students back to them in his answers. So this wasn't just Hallmark cards and bromides. This was an actual engagement. Now, with that being said, the focus of the conversation was largely on the impacts of immigration. It did venture into some of the economic questions and some of the social questions around immigration. I had wished that there had been a little bit of a farther push into issues of sexism and particularly issues of discrimination against LGBTQ plus people. We didn't get there in this conversation, but I it, it makes me hopeful that maybe there will be the possibility of inclusion in those sorts of things in later conversations, because one of the things that was asked repeatedly by the students is, Pope Francis, will you do this again? And it seemed like he was open to that possibility. So th- that's my initial report, but I'd love to talk with you about kind of what you're thinking about this as well. Yeah, I, you know, I'm struck too, David, I was thinking not so much of the live aid, but more recently with similar sort of live handoff technology based with like a large chance of, of error and tech problems, which was the, the 2020 Democratic Convention that was hand, hand that took place entirely online. And there were those great images afterwards. I, I thought of you, of course, when I first saw the photo of the producer who was running the whole thing from his living room with like all these computer monitors and everything spread out by this couch. And it was just so impressive. So, you know, yeah, again, kudos to all those involved in the tech, all those involved in the planning and organizing. As someone who does much, much smaller scale version of this for our Center for Spirituality here at St. Mary's, for our live events, I know how easily things can go awry. And so that's, you know, maybe the working of the Holy Spirit when you have the vicar of Christ on earth involved. I don't know. But actually, that's probably a good segue to my more kind of, I think, important point or observation, which is I'm struck again and again, both this week with Pope Francis, who eschews protocol when it's in favor of the gospel. I mean, Pope Francis is living the gospel of Jesus Christ in a way that very few other people are today, including many of his colleagues in the, and other church ministers such as myself and lay people, all of us who dare to call ourselves Christian. I'm thinking of what he did this week in going directly to the Russian embassy in Rome. I mean, people, I, I don't think people realize what a big deal this is. These international conversations and, and engagements are so routinized and so kind of deliberated. There are protocols for everything. And, you know, it just reminds me of Jesus, who was criticized so often in his own ministry for not following the rules of his own Jewish liturgical and Jewish social cultural context and expectations. And that that brings me to, to this event with the students, because here is somebody who is approachable, who wants to be with the people of God, the people he's called to serve, he truly demonstrates that he is a pastor and what a pastor is meant to be, not a king, 
not a lower G God, not somebody, you know, I'm thinking about Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II, who, you know, our prayers go out to her, obviously, and her family, because she's diagnosed with COVID-19 and is is hopefully doing okay, especially at her advanced age. But I mean, the protocols around Queen Elizabeth are so rigid and so stuffy and formal, as has been the case for centuries. And I think really, in the modern era, up and, up to Pope Francis, that has still been the case. I think John Paul II, obviously very, very charismatic. He was very comfortable on the public stage, certainly reached out to folks and broke protocol like when he visited the man who attempted to assassinate him in prison. But I think certainly with somebody like Pope Benedict and, and many others, there is still that kind of rigidity that comes with protocol. And it can be easy for the Pope himself, and it can be easy for those of us who are not the Pope but look up to the Pope for pastoral guidance, leadership, and teaching to mistake the man for something other than what he is, which is, you know, the pastor to the world church. What I love about this event is that, again, I can't help but fall back on what sounds like a cliche, which is living the gospel. Jesus is, Jesus, who says, let them come to me. And here are these undergrad students um, from all over the Western Hemisphere, some of whom are undocumented, and they have a, a firsthand encounter with, with the Bishop of Rome. Incredible. So I was really struck by, I mean, obviously, this is an amazing thing that these students had the chance to, you know, basically just sit down with the Pope and talk to him. I was struck by how unfazed they seemed to be about it and how blunt and candid they were with the Pope. And I was really cheering that. And and then, of course, his reaction, which was to kind of be quiet and listen to them and take notes. And then when they said challenging things, and they did several times, I mean, in addition to asking for more meetings like this, there were, you know, and, and talking very strongly about, um, you know, immigration. And as you mentioned, David, poverty that's related to that. You know, a couple students, I think, or one from Creighton University said very strongly, like, our church leaders here in the United States are not doing anything about climate change. Now, obviously, that's not a personal criticism at Pope Francis, since he wrote an entire encyclical about it and continues to speak about it. But they were heavily critical of the lack of movement on the part of church leaders on that issue. Another student mentioned something along the lines of the priests are not close to the people. And, you know, instead of being defensive or anything like that, Pope Francis was like, you're right. And if priests are like that, they're not real priests. And we need to say to priests, we need you to be close to us. I really was encouraged by the students who were, you know, respectful, but of course, but very strong in their language and in speaking the truth, their experience of the truth to the Pope. Like you, David, there wasn't a whole lot of discussion of internal church issues and as there was, for example, during the Synod with young people where some of those inclusion issues came up. But had it been a longer event, I'm sure it would have gone into those topics. And I think we can be pretty sure what we might have heard from those young people. So I find it very encouraging. It was on the day, maybe the first day of the invasion into Ukraine or maybe the day before. So there was a lot of tension around that issue. And I know the event started with a prayer for Ukraine, but I found it to be a small bright spot in an otherwise difficult week last week. I think that you're raising an incredibly important point, and that is, I think that several of the conversations that happened both during the event with the Pope and then following, because I was in a breakout event with students and faculty at IPS to try and discuss what we just heard, I think that at several points what was said was, it sounds like the Pope gets it. 
And it sounds like the students are saying it plainly. But the fear is the layers in between, the curia, the episcopacy, and the very real experience that lay Catholics have had with saying these concerns and having a deaf ear be brought, particularly by the the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. And so I think that's the named concern right now, is that it's clear that the Pope wants synodality. He wants a listening church. It's clear that the Pope says that priests who do not listen and who stand in the doorway barring the doorway are not real priests. They're bureaucrats. All of that is clear. But what we see is layers and layers of bureaucrats who – and and this was true with other synods in the past. Father Dan and I have talked about this before. You know, I'm a theologian, and I participated at one point in a questionnaire about one of the previous synods on the family. And in trying to answer the, the questionnaire, I realized that any layperson who was trying to get into those questions that were being asked was immediately being barred because the language was intentionally technical and intentionally obscure. There are steps that can be taken in order to go through the motions of listening, but not actually listen. And I think that's the fear, not with what Pope Francis is doing, because this event was very much a listening event, but with what's happening below Pope Francis. And I I don't know how to deal with that concern, but it's one that I share. I think you're pointing to something too, David, that's really key, which is style is a form of substance. It's not in addition to or on top of. And what I mean by that is, you know, jargon in any field, including in the church and in theology and canon law, can be used to obfuscate things, can be used to unnecessarily complicate things such that no one has to really give an account of themselves. And I think when somebody like Pope Francis commits himself to walking the walk of pastoral ministry that he's calling all the church to to embrace, both in terms of synodality, but also especially for its ministers, its formal ministers, ordained and lay— I think what that does is model for us a style that is, again, more in keeping with what God incarnate in Jesus modeled for us. Some people use the language of servant leadership. I mean, I have mixed feelings about that. That was really kind of hot in the late 90s, early 2000s. You don't hear about servant leadership that much these days. I mean, however we want to describe it, what I, what I think it comes down to a way of being that is is really important. And and I think when you say, David, that the students recognize that the Pope gets it, you know, and that this is having some kind of impact, there's no reason why that shouldn't be the case everywhere. I think I get really frustrated, and, and Heidi, I imagine you're on the same page, particularly as an editor, that sometimes unintentionally people, especially in writing, but sometimes in, in spoken language, if you're so close to a topic, if you're so close to a particular field, you can get you can take for granted some of the technical language and jargon such that it doesn't make any sense to anybody else after a while. You know, It's a lot harder to, to reduce a point down to subject, verb, object. And I think Pope Francis is really good at that. I, I kind of recoil when people refer to him as like folksy or you know, down to earth in almost a dismissive or patronizing way. Because I think Pope Francis, you have to be incredibly intelligent and incredibly in tune with what it is you say you believe in order to reduce something to a very accessible, nearly universally accessible concept and experience. And I thought that's kind of what played out in this in this synodal engagement. Yeah, I think what struck me is that my sense is that for younger people, this is an expectation, not so much like a, a, a unique great thing. This idea, you know, that they should be listened to or that the church should listen to its members. You know, a, a lot has been written or said about 
you know, increasing distrust of institutions and concern about that. So I think this can be a bit of a countercultural witness to that because this, you know, the, even the synodality is a very institutional process. And as such, my guess is that a lot of people who are not real connected or invested in, in the institution of the church aren't going to care about it that much. But I think sometimes those of us within church circles get very caught up on like what a beautiful you know, different model this is when really there's a whole nother generation of people who are like, duh, it should have been like this the whole time and are not that impressed. And I just was so excited by, for example, one of the students who's just like, I would like, you know, respectfully, but saying we need more meetings like this. This should be a regular thing. And so for them, I think it's not something to just, you know, sit back and say, well, wasn't that so great? I think it's like, why isn't the institution regularly functioning like this. And I think you made a good, simple description of it there, David, with like, I think the Pope wants it that way and lots of people in the church want it that way and it gets lost in the middle. Well, I've been a member at parishes in two different states, multiple parishes in two different states. And I've had the experience more than once of going onto the website, trying to find a way to contact the priest at the parish and having no direct contact information. Always the notion that you had to go through layers of the parish council or parish administration in order to actually have a conversation with the priest. That hasn't always been the case, but it has been my experience at a number of parishes. And what I really like about what the Pope did was the Pope literally said, I'm going to clear the decks and I'm going to have time to actually talk directly to people in real time and make myself available. The Pope set a really great example <laughs> for parish priests and for other, you know, diocesan functionaries as well to actually be available. And forgive me for the digression, but here in Chicago, we've had a process going on for the past several years that has resulted in the closure of and the merging of many parishes across the city, north and south parts of the city. But my experience of that process as well has been members of the archdiocese literally coming in and saying, we're going to have a listening session with the parish, and the listening session consisted of, we're the experts, here's how it's going to be, and you can tell us maybe what you'd like the ultimate name to be, but the decisions have already been made. It, it was not in any way a synodal process or a listening process. It was a bureaucratic process. And the people that they brought in were experts in mergers and acquisitions. Like they picked people, especially with those kinds of credentials. And so I think that we, you know, Pope Francis wants a listening church and a church that smells like the sheep. I think that a lot of people in the middle tiers want a mergers and acquisitions church or a church that is run like a business. Now, that's just one layperson's opinion. You may have different opinions, but that has been my experience at the parish level. I think that's right. I, I mean, our, our longtime listeners will not be surprised to hear me say that I've often described, by and large, not entirely, but by and large, the majority of, I'll just pick on the bishops for a minute, but this can be true about pastors as well at the local level, but they're not really pastoral leaders, they're pastoral managers. And I think that under the previous two pontificates, the instruction to the various nuncios around the globe was to find people. You know, sometimes I think there's a cynical way to describe it as uh, getting a bunch of papal yes men. I, I don't think that's exactly right. But people who are going to keep the party line going and, and kind of manage things, make sure the, the boat doesn't rock too much. And, you know, you know, business as usual, keeping, you know, the budget on 
track and this, that, and the other. And David, you're exactly right. It's that kind of bureaucratic, you know, <laughs> status quo. So the thing that I feel fairly confident in, though, is that the Holy Spirit doesn't work that way. Uh, the Holy Spirit is a disruptor. The uh, Holy Spirit is fire. <laughs> the Holy Spirit is the God who draws near to us and is closer to us than we are to ourselves, as Augustine says. And that is the the inspiration of, of the prophetic vision of the church. And so you can't turn the Holy Spirit into a ecclesial manager, that's for sure. So maybe that's a good place for us to end on this topic. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment. You're listening to The Francis Effect. Welcome back to The Francis Effect. I'm David Dalt, and I'm here with Heidi Schlumpf and Father Dan Haran. Every couple of weeks, we get together to discuss a variety of topics from a perspective informed by our shared Catholic faith. Today, when this episode of the podcast is released, it is Ash Wednesday, the beginning of the season of Lent. For many people, it may sneak up upon them like a surprise, given the continued collective focus on the pandemic and the recent Russian invasion of Ukraine. But whether you saw it coming or not, Lent is here again. Traditionally, the 40 days of Lent mirror the 40 days the Bible says Jesus spent in the desert fasting, praying, and being tempted by the devil. A season of penance, prayer, and almsgiving in the Christian tradition, Lent is supposed to be a time of reflection and sacrifice, self-evaluation and conversion. Many Christians take Lent as an opportunity to give something up or to do something different as an ascetical practice. Lent is a period of time intended, in part, to interrupt our normal lives, our living of ordinary time, in order to embrace conversion and renew our Christian vocations. However, in the midst of a nearly two-year-long season of pandemic, which has forced the entire world to sacrifice all sorts of activities and pleasures while enduring unprecedented hardships, what does it mean to enter into the Lenten season now? When millions of people are under threat of invasion and war, what does focusing on Lent and its accompanying call to embrace practices of penance, prayer, and almsgiving even mean? Dan, how are you thinking about Lent this year? What are you doing to mark the season? Well, I'm focusing a lot on this notion of time. And you mentioned, David, that this is a season. We talk about liturgical seasons in the year. We Just like we have natural seasons, climate seasons, where time can feel very different. It feels differently in the, in the fall and in the winter than it does in the spring and the summer as days get longer and nights shorter or vice versa. And so the liturgical cycle, the liturgical season invites us to think about time in different ways. Lent as I've always understood it, is really that period traditionally for us to slow down, to reflect on what it is that we say we're doing and who it is we say we are. And of course, the model for that, as you said, David, is Jesus's 40 days in the desert where, he, of course, he experiences temptations. So I, I think this notion of dedicated time is the thing I'm drawn to most right now. And, and for two reasons. One is, as you mentioned, like the pandemic seems to be never ending. I mean, there is knock on wood, uh, a certain kind of positive moment we're entering into right now. So I think that itself is a time change. But nevertheless, for the last two years, time has lost a lot of meaning. I, I don't know if this is the same for the two of you and many of our listeners, but I find myself saying, 
boy, that seems like that was 400 years ago, or it seems like yesterday. And the kind of inability to grapple with the meaning of time anymore has been very jarring for me personally. So I'm trying to think about Lent this year, this season, as making time holy again or sanctifying time. Can I be deliberate about that? And it's going to be a particular challenge for me this year, to be honest with you all, and and to kind of hold myself accountable because I have an unusually busy spring semester. And this is in large part due to the fact that we've had two years of pandemic where lots of events have been on the calendar and scheduled and rescheduled again. And we're at a point now where things are easing up that we can have more in-person gatherings and events and lectures and so forth. So I'm going to be on the road a lot, maybe not as much as I was before the pandemic, but in such a way that I'm anticipating struggling with keeping that time holy. So I'll tell you one thing, breaking news here, although if people follow me on social media, they will notice this before this drops. But it is my intention, as cliched as it is, I've never actually partaken of this. I'm signing off of social media this Lent. So get ready for that. I'm not going to be on Twitter. I'm not going to be on Facebook. What I plan to say, there should be something up pinned on those pages that if you want to hear me talk, listen to The Francis Effect twice a month. If you want to hear what I have to say, read the NCR column every (laughs) twice a month as well. Every week, there'll be something coming out from me. But I'm not one of these people who's constantly on my phone or constantly addicted to the Twitter feed or anything like that. After a while, I find it, you know, really kind of draining. But I, I do find myself wishing that there was that one fewer distraction in my life. And so this is maybe a low-hanging fruit. Maybe it's an easy thing, but it's a starting point. And that's a practice I haven't really embraced before, and I'm going to give it a try. Maybe I'll come back. Maybe I won't. We'll see where the Holy Spirit leads. What are you two thinking about this Lent, and where are you going with it, David? So I'll just say I'm kind of very cynical, and I'm just going to admit that. So I, when, when the pandemic first started, I went into a very dark spiritual place. I ended up through my work doing what the Jesuits call a 19th annotation, which is a multi-month review of the spiritual exercises with a spiritual director. And that actually got me back from the brink in a lot of ways. I was really thinking about God in very violent terms at the beginning of this kind of dark space. And so I will say that I have a good prayer life, and I'm not as cynical as I was, but I am kind of still deeply reserved about the church and the timetable of the church. And so I think that I am largely going to be ignoring Lent this year in terms of a formal process. I will not participate in Ash Wednesday. I will not participate in some of the ways that I have participated in Lent before. I will probably fast because that kind of speaks to my condition right now. But I I feel very distanced from the church. And But I want to say this clearly so that listeners hear, I don't feel distanced from the church in a bad way. I feel like the distance from the church that I'm feeling right now is kind of healthy, like the way that one is distanced from an abusive relative. And so in that particular sense, I mean, I guess part of my fast is going to be a fast from from the church. But I want listeners to hear that in that I am still participating in certain aspects of the liturgical life. I'm participating in prayer. I'm participating in charisms and spirituality. I don't feel far from the heart of Christ, but I do feel a little far from the heart of the institutional church right now. And that's something I would welcome prayer about, but I don't really need intervention about, if that makes sense. Absolutely. 
Yeah, all I can say um, is, David, I support you in that because I've done that through various times in my life as well, even as I've worked for the church, having to take breaks from participation in some aspects, at least of the institutional church, because it didn't feel healthy or right for where I was spiritually at the time. I'd be much more nervous if you said you were distant from God, but, but to be distant from the church is, especially as a temporary thing, something many of us have had to do. So I'm way more shocked that Dan is giving up social media. <laughs> I, mean, I hope like... my editor-in-chief doesn't <laughs> mind, because that's my biggest concern, is that my publishers and my editors are going to be very concerned that I'm not out there with my followers spreading the good word. <laughs> no, of course, we we appreciate Dan has, has quite a following on social media, and I know drives a lot of traffic to our site through that. But if you are taking a break from social media for your spiritual practice of Lent, I, I wholeheartedly support that. I kind of jokingly wrote a column last week advising people not to give up TikTok for Lent. It was kind of a joke as a way of saying, don't give it up now because NCR is just announcing that we are on TikTok. We've been on for several months and we were waiting until we were a little more established and had our first TikTok video go viral, which was the words of uh, Pope Francis about not uh, judging LGBTQ children. And it Last I checked, it had three quarters of a million uh, views. So most of our our videos don't have that many views. I know we just posted the dogs of NCR. <laughs> so there's a lot of fun stuff on TikTok. I won't be giving up social media for Lent. I never do. It's too much part of my job. And another thing that I usually don't give up for Lent is anything related to food fasting. So I've done other kinds of fasts, other kinds of practices, whether they're spiritual or I've done some of the, you know, clutter fasts, a bag of day of clutter and junk from my house donated or thrown out. But this year I am reconsidering possible food-related fast. And I just want to acknowledge that for some people, and especially for many women, fasting around the issue of food can be very challenging. I guess that's one way to put it. Or it can be even dangerous, especially if you have it connected to your spirituality. So women receive so many messages already from the culture ar around our bodies and food and what that might mean for our bodies. And so to uh, think that God somehow wants you to eat less is, can be a dangerous message for some men and, and for women. So in the past, I have stayed away from that in part because I have struggled with food throughout my life and finally gotten to a pretty healthy relationship to food. And so don't want to kind of screw that up. That said, NCR's publication Earthbeat, which focuses on climate change, the intersection between climate change and faith, is doing for Lent this year a series of articles from kind of reflections and videos on social media around eating more eco-friendly, primarily vegetarian and vegan meals. And I'm really excited about it. And also this coincides with my own daughter who has been eating vegetarian for about a year and a half. And it's it's led to some changes in the way we eat as a family. Now, my other uh, child, my son, is a huge meat eater. So there's no way I can make a family decision about what we're going to eat for the next 40 days that won't include meat. But I'm considering something around eating more eco-friendly and, and cutting out even more meat from my diet, maybe even giving up meat altogether. And so look for those reflections at NCR online slash 
backslash earthbeat. But it's something that I'm a little bit more open to than I have been in the past. So I'll be on social media, but I might be fasting. Just two points there to, to follow up. One is a, a shout out to a, a friend and colleague of mine and, and former guest on David's other podcast and a contributor to NCR, Dr. Jessica Koblenz, who wrote a piece maybe a year or two ago for NCR on what you were just describing, Heidi, about the complexity around fasting, especially for, for women in the church. Worth reading, and we'll have a link in the show notes to that. But I'm really, I appreciate your um you know, the fasting from meat, as it were, or, or more eco-focused fasting, quote-unquote, put air quotes in there. This is something that's always been pretty big for the local community of friars that I've lived in, in Chicago, is that every Lent we've moved to a, a vegetarian dinner process. So usually friars are out working, ministering, studying, teaching during the day. So lunch is every, kind of on their own. Breakfast is like most families, most places, you know, just whatever you can get kind of on your own. And dinner was always the real meal where we gathered together. We take turns on a schedule who was going to cook for the whole community. But it was decided that in, in Lent, and we'd done, we had done this for many years, that we just we wouldn't eat meat. There wasn't a need to. And it would be for ecological reasons and for spiritual reasons and, and for financial reasons too. You end up saving quite a bit of money if you have a, a more plant-based diet. And so we would usually donate whatever was saved in that 40 days or so of not eating meat to a charitable cause or some ministry. I actually did what you're describing early in my formation as a friar about 17 years ago now. And I ended up eating as a vegetarian for almost two years after that. I started at one Lent and just didn't stop until I realized it became kind of a burden on the community, you know, and it's kind of like what you were describing, the complexities of family life where in, it's hard to be sort of absolutely assertive as an individual with a preferred diet when a community or a family has to make these decisions together, especially with shared meals. So I, I am back to an omnivore. I always try to eat less meat. I, I recognize the importance of that. Although I want to make clear to our listeners, Francis of Assisi himself was never a vegetarian, even though he is the patron saint of ecology. I bring that up not to encourage meat eating, but to say that you know this is not some sort of like contradiction in terms being a Franciscan and this particular approach to, to food. But I do say that I think that's a wonderful Lenten practice and one that might, as you anticipate, might continue on beyond Easter. I, I want to follow up on that and talk about just briefly the way that I think about fasting during Lent and at other times. I think that oftentimes in America, we can tend to think of fasting as a kind of individualist thing, like it's focused on me, me, me. And one of the things that has really helped me in thinking about fasting is to think instead about fasting as a way of having empathy and solidarity with the suffering. And so, for example, when I have given up various things during Lent in years past, when I've given up meat or when I've given up sugar or what have you, and I feel the pangs because, you know, you you have a regular habit of taking something into your body and your body reminds you that it wants those things, I have tried to lift up those pangs as a way of saying, I, I, I offer this right now in solidarity with those who have no opportunity right now to get these things that are so easy for me. And that has really been reinforced in the last couple of years. I've had a, a relationship on Twitter, since we're talking about social media, with a friend named Kevin. You can follow him on Twitter at disabled saints, but he has a chronic disease and he oftentimes will say in the moments of his pain and suffering that he's lifting this up and he's actually praying for others and he invites, you know, prayer intercessions that 
to be given to him so that he might intercede in his moments of pain. That's been really impactful on me to think about moments when I am feeling physical discomfort, not as an individualist time for me to say, oh, woe is me, but rather as an opportunity for me to draw close to God, because that's where Christ in Matthew 25 has told us that Christ will show up with the suffering. So in those moments, Christ is close. And I really have, I've been very heartened by the idea that my privation or my pain can be an opportunity for prayer for those who suffer continually. Well, and I think, David, that's exactly right. You know, in terms of the of an authentic or substantive theology of fasting, it isn't about an individual thing. And this is where it becomes, as Heidi was referring to earlier, really complicated and at times dangerous in an individualistic sort of culture and one where body image, especially for women, is, is so complicated and so treacherous in the way that people navigate these things. But that's exactly right. It's always towards solidarity. All ascetic practices are, right? They're not for ourselves. It's not so that one can, quote unquote, lose weight or one can, you know, improve their health or something like that. If that's a byproduct, you know, improving one's health, like if you want to give up cigarettes with the hope that you don't ever smoke again, I guess that's a good thing. But that's why Lent would be the question, right? You should probably give up cigarettes at, you know, at any time of year. And so the question is exactly that you're, what you're raising is how does this help me to be a better person in solidarity with others, a more compassionate person, a person who is thinking in terms of community rather than individual. And there are lots of ways to do that. So I really applaud, you know, the engagement or non-engagement, David, as, as you're suggesting this Lent, this is where the Spirit's leading you. This is what you need for your own kind of spiritual nourishment. And uh, and to all of our listeners, you know, let us know on Twitter, let us know on Facebook what you're up to this year or what you're not up to for that matter and how you're thinking about marking this holy season of Lent. And so with that, we're at the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening. On behalf of Father Dan and Heidi, we'll be back again in two weeks. Until then, know that you are in our prayers, and we invite your prayers for us and for our work as well. Thank you so much for listening to The Francis Effect. The Francis Effect is produced by Sandberg Media LLC and is recorded remotely in Chicago, Illinois and South Bend, Indiana. It's edited by me at the William Adams Studios in Hyde Park on Chicago's beautiful South Side. The opinions of this program are our own and do not reflect the positions of any organizations with which we may be affiliated. We want to give a shout out to the Salt and Light Catholic Media Foundation. They are not affiliated with our program, but they did give us their kind permission to use the name The Francis Effect, and we appreciate it very much. Please check out their good work at slmedia.org. This show is made possible in part by our Patreon supporters, and if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash francisfxpod. We appreciate it very much. Please follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Both of those are at francisfxpod, and our website is also francisfxpod.com. Please tell your friends about the show, and if you're here for the first time, we have seasons and seasons of episodes that you can go back to and listen to for your heart's content. We're so glad that you're here. Heidi and Father Daniel and I will be back in about two weeks. We're looking forward to being with you then. Thank you again for listening.